0: Now, last time, friends, we were talking about this matter of sanctification. We saw that the last part of the fifth chapter is probably the most difficult section in the Word of God. It deals with the imputation of sin. We discovered there that there's another head of the human family, and that's Christ. And he brings life, and he brings righteousness. He removes the guilt of sin, and on that basis now, he can move into the lives of those who trust in him and begin to make them righteous. That is, he can begin to make them good. Now, we have here in this chapter what I've labeled positional sanctification. That sounds very theological, I recognize. But that means identification with Christ is the basis of sanctification. Then we shall have practical sanctification, and that'll be in verses 14 through 23. Last time we saw potential sanctification. Then after we get through practical sanctification, we're going to be looking at that which is powerless sanctification In Romans 7. And then finally, we'll be talking about powerful sanctification. That's in Romans 8, of course, and that is by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, let me say just a word about this matter of sanctification. There's something here that we need to see, that there is a difference between justification and sanctification. And these are two words, friends, that you ought to cozy up to and get acquainted with them. They are Bible words, by the way. And there is a difference between salvation itself and this matter of not only being saved from sin, but then of the matter of making us in the saints. That is the type of folk that we should be because we are separated under God. Now, identification with Christ for justification is also the grounds of our sanctification. We're in Christ. These are two different subjects, but they're not mutually exclusive. Justification is the foundation on which all the superstructure of sanctification rests. Now, let me put it like this. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a work. Justification takes place the moment you trusted Christ, you're declared righteous. The guilt is removed. Then God begins to work in us. That's not just a moment's work, by the way. I believe in instantaneous salvation, but I believe in a moment by moment work all the time that we're in this life. In other words, we're going to see that justification is the means. Sanctification is the end. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin, and sanctification removes the growth and the power of sin. You see, God is an exterior decorator. He enables us to stand before him because he's paid the penalty and removes the guilt of sin. But he's an interior decorator also. And he moves into our hearts and in our lives by the power of the Spirit to make us the kind of Christians we should see. God does not leave us in sin when he saves us. Now, this does not imply that sanctification is a duty that is derived from justification. It's a fact that proceeds from it, or rather both justification and sanctification flow from being in Christ, crucified and risen. The sinner appropriates Christ by faith for both his salvation and his sanctification. We're told in 1 Corinthians one thirty, "...but of him are ye in Christ Jesus." "...who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption." In other words, up to chapter 6, Paul does not discuss the holy life of the saint. From chapter 6 on, Paul does not discuss the salvation of the sinner. He wasn't talking about the saint and the life he's to live when he was discussing salvation. Now he is discussing that, and therefore... The subject of this chapter is the ability of God to make sinners whom he has declared righteous, actually righteous. That is to be holy in all manner of their lives. He shows that the justified sinner cannot continue in sin because he died and rose again in Christ. To continue in sin leads to slavery to sin, and is the additional reason for not continuing in sin. And it reveals the fact that he has a new nature, and he's to obey God. This section delivers us from this idea, you can do as you please. Union in Christ, in his death and resurrection, means that he is now our Lord and Master. And he gives us freedom, but that freedom is not license, as we're going to see. Now, let me begin reading here in this section we've labeled positional sanctification. Romans 6 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul now is being argumentative. He wasn't, you remember, when he was discussing sin, he was just stating facts. He wasn't trying to prove anything. He just looked at life in the raw, right down where the rubber meets the road, and he says, We're all sinners. Now he uses this idiomatic question, which opens up this chapter, and it is argumentative, and we're going to find that he uses it several times. He asks it in such a way in the Greek that, very frankly, there's only one answer to it. He says, what shall we say then? And after you see God's wonderful question, my question is, what can you say to it? All you can do is just say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And that seems very trite. To just say that because so many repeat it today till it has become meaningless. It's just a Christian cliche. But my friend, what else can you say to God's wonderful salvation? Now the question is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And this, my friend, is a very interesting statement. It's God's answer to the question of whether when you're saved by grace... You can continue to live in sin, and the answer is, God forbid. Verse 2, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, the very fact that Paul is asking this question means very evidently that Paul understood justification to mean a declaration of righteousness, and that it did not mean to make good, but to declare a person good. And it means that the guilt or the penalty of sin is removed, not the power of sin in this life. And now he's going to talk about removing the power of sin. If God has declared you to be righteous and remove the guilt of sin, then, my friend, you cannot continue in sin. The answer is, God forbid. Now, this is something that's misunderstood. How shall we that are dead to sin? You're never dead to sin as long as you're in this life. And the better translation, in fact, the literal translation is, how shall we who died to sin? And note that distinction. And that means we died in the person of our substitute, Jesus Christ. We died to sin in Christ, but we're never dead to sin. Any honest person knows he never reaches the place where he's dead to sin. He reaches a place where he wants to live for God. But he recognizes he still has that old sin nature, It's verses like this that have led a group of sincere folk that I call super-duper saints. And I hope I'm not being unfair, unkind to them, but they feel like they've reached some sort of an exalted plane where they do not commit sin. They've reached the pinnacle of perfection. There's a group that's known as the Victorious Life Group. Now, I know there are different brands of these, but one group was especially obnoxious Several years ago here in Southern California, one young man came up to me one morning after the service. He said, are you living the victorious life?" I think I shocked him. I said, no, I'm not. But I added, are you? Well, he beat around the bush, didn't want to give a direct answer. And I said, wait a minute. And he finally said, I tried to. And I said, that's not the question. You asked me, was I living it? And I said, no. Now, you answer me, yes or no. And friends, to this good day, he hasn't answered me. And he was a very anemic-looking fellow. Now, I do not know why, but all those in that group that I've come in contact with are anemic-looking. This fellow looked like he was a fugitive from a blood bank. He was a little, bitty, dried-up fellow. And he wanted to know whether I was living a victorious life. And he says, well, doesn't the Scripture say I'm crucified with Christ? And then doesn't it say that we're dead to sin? And I said, well, no, that's not what the Scripture said. We died to sin in Christ. That's our position. But I said, we're never dead to sin in this life. You have a sinful nature. I have a sinful nature. And we'll have it as long as we're in this life. He said, well, what does it mean when we're crucified with Christ? I said, well, when Christ died 1,900 years ago, that's when we died. We died in him. We died in him, and we were raised in him, and we're joined now to a living Christ. I said, young man, that's the great truth that's there. The great truth is not that you and I have crucified this old nature. I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at crucifying myself. I said, the very interesting thing is, you can kill yourself off many different ways. You can take poison, you can get a gun, you can jump off a building, and you can hang yourself. Well, there are many different ways you can do it, but you can't crucify yourself when you drive the nail with one hand into the cross. Who's going to drive the other hand into the cross? You can't do it. How are you going to crucify yourself? You cannot do that, my young friend. You were crucified 1,900 years ago when he died. Now, notice what he says here in verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Christ Christ we were baptized into his death. Now, verse 3 here is a very important verse because, again, here's a verse that has been misunderstood. If you find water in this verse, then may I say to you that you miss the meaning. At least I think so. I remember years ago hearing the late Dr. Pettengill. I'd heard him as a student in seminary, and then I invited him for a conference in Pasadena when I was pastor there. And I was taking him back to the hotel one night after the service. And I said to him, Dr. Pettengill, didn't I understand you to say that there's no water in the sixth of Romans? And by the way, I should add that he was the strongest immersionist that I ever met in my life. And when I said that, he laughed and he said, no, that's not exactly what I said. I said, if all you see in Romans 6 is water, you've missed it. Well, I said to him, if you were willing to go that far, that's good enough for me, because it confirms the great truth that's here. Now, the word baptize here, I do not think that it means water baptism primarily. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe in water baptism, and I believe in immersion. It best sets forth what is taught here. But what he's talking about here is identification with Christ. You see, the translators never did translate the word baptizo. They transliterated it. That is, they just took it out of the Greek and spelled it out in English. That is the way they did it. And the reason is it has so many meanings. I have a classical lexicon that has about 20 meanings for this word baptizo. It actually could mean dye your hair. And to tell the truth, there were a group of those in Asia Minor that dyed their hair purple, and they belonged to a baptizo group. May I say to you that it means to be identified with Jesus Christ, and we were baptized or identified into his death. By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. We've now identified, been put in one body And that's the body of believers as Christ in the world today. Now, that's very important for us to see. And now Paul's going to say there are three things that are essential to our sanctification. Two of them are positional. One of them is very practical. Now, the two of them that are positional, we're to know something. Now, for every gadget I think today that you buy, even at the five and ten cent store, has instructions that come with it. And they're sometimes difficult for me to follow when I buy a toy for my grandson. But one of these things that you are to put together, you take it out of a box and you try to follow the instructions. Well, you and I, to live the Christian life, that's a very important matter. And it comes with instructions. There are certain things that we're to know. And the first things we're to know, we're to know that when Christ died 1,900 years ago, we were identified with him. Let me put it like this. 1,900 years ago, they led Vernon McGee outside of an oriental city by the name of Jerusalem. I stood, by the way, at that spot not too long ago, and I looked up to Gordon's Calvary, the place of the skull, Golgotha, and I saw that there was one who died. But when he died there 1,900 years ago, he took Vernon McGee there. I was the one who was guilty. He was not guilty. Don't argue with me about whether the Jews crucified Christ. Why, he died on the Roman cross. Tell the truth. But let's not argue that. My sin put him there, and your sin put him there. We were identified with Jesus Christ. That's something we should know, and that's very important for us to know. We're identified with him. That's number one. We're to know that. Therefore, we're told here, we are buried with him by baptism into death. This is identification. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that is verse 4. We're baptized into his death, and then we're identified with him when he's raised, you see. We died with him, and he was raised, and we are raised. We are joined today to a living Christ. In other words, our sins have already been judged. We're already raised, and we're yonder seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Friends, there's only two places for your sins. Either they were on Christ when he died for you 1,900 years ago, and you've trusted him as your Savior, or they're on you today and you're yet to come up for judgment. There's no third place for them. Now listen to Paul here. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. And that's Colossians 3.1. These are the important things for us today. We are buried with him by identification into his death. Now, I'll be very frank with you. I was raised a Presbyterian, but I think that immersion sets forth the type here. I think the Spirit's baptism is the real baptism. Water is a ritual baptism. But I do think that immersion sets it forth, the great spiritual truth that's here. And that's the reason that a child of God should be baptized. It's a testimony that we're joined to the living Christ. And that's very important. In fact, it's all important. Now, will you notice something else here? We're told, for instance, Peter says, baptism doth also now save us. 1 Peter three twenty-one. Well, how does it save us? Well, he'd been talking about eight souls that were saved in the ark. They went through the judgment of waters inside the ark. The people who got in the water, they were drowned. The people in the ark never did get in the water. But they were saved by baptism, we are told. Now, they were inside the ark. They were identified with the ark. They had believed God got in the ark, and God saw that little boat floating on top of the water. And God sees Christ today, and not Vernon McGee. If he saw Vernon McGee, I wouldn't get anywhere but in Christ. Christ went down into the waters of death. We're in Christ. We're raised with him. We're joined to him. That's the important truth here. Don't miss it, because if you do, you'll miss one of the greatest truths of the Christian life. Now, will you notice here something else that he says to us, and we should follow it very closely. Verse 5, For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, that looks forward to the time when you and I are going to be raised in newness of life with him. He says this, though this is for today, knowing this. These are things that we are to know, that our old man is crucified with him. When he says our old man is crucified with Christ, that doesn't mean our father, by the way. It means you're our old nature. That's the body of sin. That it might be destroyed, and may I say the word is paralyzed or canceled or nullified, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And because the old nature is not destroyed, and that's not what Paul is saying here, that what happens is this, that now the old nature is put into place because you've got a new nature, and you're today in a place where you are to live in the power of, of the Spirit of God. Now he says, for he who died is freed from sin. Verse 7, not he that is dead, but he who died is declared righteous from sin. That's the position. Now we're told, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. That's the glorious hope that we have. And we share his resurrection life today, and someday we'll be raised from the dead. Now, verse 9, knowing this is something we should know, friends, that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. He ever lives. That's the victor's course. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And he says in Revelation 1, 18, I am he that liveth. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of death and of hell. We're told that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The resurrection opens up eternity to Christ for those who will trust him. Now we're told in verse 10, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. Now in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. He died one time, but he's alive today, and he ever lives to make intercession for those that are his. Because of that, he can save you right through to the uttermost. Now verse 11. We come to the second thing that the believer today is to reckon on. And it's this. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now count on this. Rest on this. That is what he means here by reckon. It is something that you're to count on. Doesn't mean exactly what some of us Texans mean by that. That is, I suppose. But I know. This is something I count on. Now he says... "...let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof." Now we come to that which is all-important. This is the third. Sanctification is, first of all, positional, and that means we're to know something. That is, we're to know God's method of making the sinner the kind of person that he wants him to be. After all, justification merely declared him righteous. Righteous. It removed the guilt of sin, but it did not remove the sin in the life or change him in his life. It gave him a new nature. Now, God wants him to live in the power of the new nature, and he's to know that he was buried with Christ and raised with him. Now, that power of the new nature doesn't come from the new nature, but is the Holy Spirit. Only God can save us. Only God can enable us to live for him. That is, he died 1,900 years ago, and today we're joined to the living Christ. And then we're to reckon on that. We're to count on that. You see, God saves us by faith. We're to live by faith. Now, I find today that many of us, and that includes this poor preacher, that I've trusted him for salvation. But what about today? What about tomorrow? Are we trusting him today to live for him? And that's exactly what he wants us to do. We are to reckon on it. We're to count on it. Saved by faith, live by faith. Listen to him. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 13. Now, these are the things which are actually positional, we're to know. And second, we're to reckon on. Now we're told to yield yourselves. Now, this word yield actually means to present yourself. Now, the law was given to control the old nature. You're not to live by the old nature. you got a new nature. And you're now to yield yourselves or present yourselves to God. That's same as Romans 12, 1. I beseech you there for by the mercies of God that you present your body. Same word. May I say this very carefully, friend? This is very practical. This gets right down to the nitty-gritty, right where the rubber meets the road. And the question is, have you really ever presented yourself unto Christ? Have you ever really come to the living Christ and say, I've trusted you and I've fallen, I've stumped my toe, I've fallen on my face as Simon Peter did? And the Lord Jesus said, I pray that your faith fail not. And he, my friend, is able to see us through. But you've got to commit yourselves to him. This is an act of the will. And don't say you can't do it. If you're a child of God, you can do it. This is an act of your will, of a regenerated person. If you're not a child of God, of course you can't. This business of whining around like poor old Joshua, when God said to him, Israel has sinned, Deal with that which is absolutely wrong in your life. Now, let's look at that for just a moment. The idea of the surrendered life or the yielded life sounds like blah to so many people. We talk about surrendering and at the same time living the victorious life, and they seem to be a contradiction of terms. But actually, the word here is the word present. And I like it much better. "...Neither present ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin." Now, the reason that most of us get into trouble is because of the fact we yield ourselves to the old nature. And by an act of the will, we can yield ourselves to do God's will through the new nature. A little girl fell out of bed one night, and she began to cry, and a mother rushed into her bedroom picked her up and put her in bed and asked her, says, honey, why did you fall out of bed? And she said, I think I stayed too close to the place where I got in. And that's the reason that a great many of us fall, my friend. It's because of the fact that we're actually yielding ourselves to the old nature. We're following the old nature. We just don't get rid of that. And that's what gets us into trouble. But we're told now Yield yourselves unto God. Just as you yield yourself to do sin, you have a new nature now. You're to yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead. You're now alive in Christ. You have a new nature. You've been born again. And you're members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And I think this deals with that which is specific sins. Sins in the life. You and I have a new nature. Now you've been born again. And your members, as instruments of righteousness under God, you're to yield your members. And I think this deals with that which is specific and particular. What's your real problem, friend? I don't know what it is. I know what mine is. What about yours? Whatever that specific thing is, yield it to God. A bad temper? Well, take that to him and talk to him about it. What about a gossipy tongue? The dear lady that was at a tongues meeting and expressed interest, the leader came to her and said to her, Madam, would you like to speak in tongues? And she said, Oh, my, no. I'd like to lose about 40 feet off the one I got now. And there are a great many folk today really need to lose a little bit of the tongue they've got. That would really be speaking in tongues, the right kind. Do you have control of it, you see? Or, is this your problem? These are the things we're talking about. And by the way, in this day in which we're living, what about immorality? Sex is the big subject of the hour. My, everybody's getting in on the act today. Is that your sin? Well, you're to yield yourself to God. Your instruments is instrument of righteousness to God. And don't tell me you can't do it. You can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me continue now to read on. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Verse 14. And that simply means this. The law was given to control your old nature and was never given for the new nature. The new nature is to be yielded to Christ and it's to be presented to him. The living Christ today. And this is the glorious, wonderful thing that a child of God can do. You can yield yourself unto God. You can present yourself unto him. Now, he goes on to say, "'What then are we to sin, or shall we sin, because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid.'" Now, let me give you my translation here because I think it'll be a little helpful to us. "'What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace?' Or should we commit an act of sin, for ye are no more under law but under grace? Away with the thought. Perish the thought. Now, the form of the question is put differently here than it was back in verse 1. Paul has demonstrated in the past 14 verses that God's method of sanctification is on the same basis as justification by faith. That is, it's by faith. Faith that God can do it. You and I can't do it. If you and I learn we can't live the Christian life, then we've learned a great lesson. Then we're prepared to let him live it through us. Now the question here is whether there should be an assist given to grace to accomplish its high and holy end. In other words, there ought to be some law, some rules or regulations given, and that's what the natural man thinks. Well... My, aren't there some rules and regulations as a result of why we have had them in the course of the church's history? We've had all kinds of groups that have come up with rules for living the Christian life. There were the Puritans, wonderful group of people, and we owe a great deal to them. They had their strict Sabbath observance. That was an obsession with them. They call Sunday the Sabbath day, which it's not, but they were under law. And my, they were strict on that day. Then we have a carryover of that. We have a great many people that put down certain rules. And I think some of our fundamental people have made not ten commandments, but about twenty new commandments for the believer. And if they don't do certain things and they do other things, well, it's wonderful. They're living the Christian life. And this is the reason, friends, that I oppose all of these courses that think that you can become a wonderful Christian by just taking some of these short courses. And that's not the way that you're to do it. We have a girl that took a course and, oh, she was enthusiastic. But you ought to see her today. She's in depression. Why? Because she tried to do it by rules and not let Christ do it. Now, may I say a Christian life is not that at all of following these rules. You can follow rules and regulations and still not be living the Christian life. And somebody says, well, then what is the Christian life? The Christian life is to be obedient unto Christ. It means communication with Christ. My friend, do you love him? That's the important thing. He says, if you love me... Keep my commandments. And I think he would say, you don't let me forget it. Now, we have seen in this section something that's very important. Identification with Christ is positional sanctification. That's the basis of it. But obedience to Christ is the experience of sanctification, and that's practical sanctification. And it's just as simple as that, my friend. It's not what you're doing, but it's where you're walking today. It's not how you walk, but where you're walking. Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in fellowship with Christ? Well, sin will break it, of course, and when it breaks it, we're to confess our sins. But the Lord Jesus said to Peter, yonder in the upper room, If I wash you not, you have no part with me. That is, you don't have fellowship with me. And we must confess our sins as we go along if we're to have fellowship with him. My friend, the most important thing for you and for me is to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and to obey him. That's the thing. Now, Paul's going to develop that. By the way, I ought to pass this on to you. It was Dr. Vinson who once said to Goday, He said, there is a subtle poison which insinuates itself into the heart. Even of the best Christian, it is the temptation to say, let us sin, not that grace may abound, but because it does abound. That's the end of quotation. You see, there are a great many today and a great many Christians, too, who say, I'm saved by grace, and I can do as I please. My friend, if you've been saved by grace, you can't do what you please, as we're going to see in the 8th chapter of Romans. But Paul, in Galatians, he makes it very clear there are three ways which you can live. And I would say all people are living by one of these today. You can live by law. You can live by license, or you can live by liberty. Now, to live by law, well, everyone puts down some principle which they live. I read of a movie star that said his whole life was given to sex. That's his law. He lives by it. And I don't care who you are. If you're living by law, you're living by the old nature. And I don't care how much of the law you put in. Then there's the other extreme. And that's what Paul is guarding against here, and that's license. If you're a child of God, you can't do as you please. You have to do as Christ pleases. You must be obedient unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to present ourselves unto him. Now, this is very practical, and it's lots more practical than a great many Christians seem to realize. Listen to verse 16. Know ye not? And when Paul says, know ye not, you can put it down that we believers don't know and we need to know. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now, this is something that's practical and it's so real. Every person that's living is a bond servant to one, that is to something, someone or something. I picked up. Uh, statement the other day that every person obeys something or some person. Well, you're obeying somebody or something. You could be obeying Satan himself. Because of our very nature, we are a servant or a slave to something or to somebody. What he's saying here is that the one who is our master is the one that we obey. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. If you obey sin, well, Then that's your master. Don't say Christ is your master if you're living in sin because of the fact that he's not your master. He brings you into the place of liberty. The Son make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free to do what? You'll be free to live for him. Free to obey him. And the Lord Jesus said again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committed sin is a servant of sin. Now, let me use a very homely illustration. There used to be a very swanky club in front of the church I served in downtown Los Angeles. It's still there. It's made up of rich men. And I'm told that you have to have several thousand dollars to join the club. Well, if you belong to it, by probably it means you own a Cadillac and you have a chauffeur. Well, one day I looked out the window and I saw a group of chauffeurs standing around talking in a circle. There was... Several Cadillacs parked around. It was after lunch. And finally, as I looked out, I saw a very distinguished-looking gentleman come out of the club, and he made a motion and said something. I couldn't understand what he said. But I saw one of the chauffeurs leave the group of about 15. He went over, opened the door of the Cadillac, and this man got in. Then he went around, got in the driver's seat, and drove off. Now, I came to a very profound conclusion. And you know what that conclusion was? I came to the conclusion that that man who drove that car was the servant or the employee of the man who called him. And I don't think those other 14 chauffeurs were employed by the man in the car. They didn't obey him, but this man did. That means he's his master. My friend, that's what Paul is saying. I don't care who you are, who you obey, what you obey, That's your master. You're obeying someone or something. And that leads us to this. Is Christ really our master today? And that's the reason you're not under law today. Just to be able to say, I don't kill, I don't lie, I don't do the other things. I don't know whether you do or not. But if you can say you don't do them, that doesn't mean you're living the Christian life. It means you're living a good life, perhaps, and that's all. But the Christian life is one where we obey Christ. Now listen to him in verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And I wish you had my book that could follow along here, but I don't have time to develop my translation there. In other words, when you were in the world, when you were lost, you obeyed sin. That was just natural for you to do. You did what came naturally. I don't care what man there is today. He may live an exemplary life where the Chamber of Commerce presents him with a medal, loving cup and makes him the citizen of the year. I overheard one of those men talk one time after he'd been presented with the cup as the outstanding citizen of a certain community. And the language of this man was the foulest language I've ever listened to. Now, he may be the outstanding citizen of that community, but you know who he's obeying. Well, it's quite obvious who he's obeying. He's obeying the devil. The fact that you obey Christ is the thing that's important. Now, another thing that we need to understand is this, that when you've been saved, you have a new nature, and that new nature can obey Christ. There are several things we're going to find out later on. And that's when we get in the seventh chapter of Romans, and it's something, I think, that all of us have to discover for ourselves. Paul went through the experience of being a new Christian, and he discovered first that there was no good in his old nature. Paul says, I know that within me, within my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Romans 7:18. Many of us have not discovered that. But there's no good in us, friends. The old nature has no good in it. And you can do a lot with it, but you sure can't make it good. Now, the second startling fact is this. There is no power in the new nature. Now, that's where most of us make our mistake. We think that because we're now Christians, we can walk on top of the world. We can't. We're just as weak as we have ever been before. And that's the reason today that we have to walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. And only the Spirit of God can produce the Christian life, as we're going to see in the 8th chapter of Romans. Now listen to him as he goes on in this section here at verse 18. He says, "...being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness." We've been liberated. In other words, he's made it possible for us today to live the Christian life. It doesn't mean that sin has been eradicated or removed, but it does mean that now we can live for God. And then he goes on in verse nineteen, and he says, I speak in human terms on account of the difficulties of apprehension or the weakness of your flesh, that is your human nature, for as you presented or yielded your members slaves for the practice of impurity and to lawlessness, even so now present your members slaves to righteousness. That's my translation, as you see. Paul explains here, I think, why he uses the term slaves or bond servants. He, I think, halfway apologizes in the last verse for using it. Slavery was common in the Roman Empire. Out of the 120 million people in the Roman Empire, one half were slaves. Many Christians were slaves. And the little epistle to Philemon reveals that freedom was a prized possession and difficult to obtain. Paul uses this familiar metaphor, which he describes as human terms, He says, I'm speaking to you in human terms. He doesn't mean he's not speaking by inspiration, but I'm speaking in the manner in which you'll understand. You'll understand that you're actually slaves. Now, the religious rulers were insulted when the Lord Jesus suggested that they were slaves of sin. Remember, the Lord Jesus said to those Jews that believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and one never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now, how many men and women are servants and slaves of sin? Oh, the tragedy of our young people who've rebelled against the establishment of and its rules and regulations, and they have found that they've been destroyed thousands today by drugs, by drink, and now understand it's back to alcohol for them. May I say that you can get delivered maybe from one group and its rules and regulations, but if you don't turn to Christ, you may be getting out of the frying pan into the fire. This that's happening in our culture today is one of the saddest things that's happening in our contemporary age. There are so many people today, slaves of something down here. The Lord Jesus says, when you commit sin, you're the servant of sin. Now, Paul goes on in verse 20. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. That is, you didn't think of serving Christ then. You weren't interested in that. You were... Free from him. Now he says, verse 21, What fruit had ye then, in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. They were free then and fruitless. They did as they pleased. But where's the fruit? The only fruit was shame. Now, do they want to go back to that? That's license. That's not real freedom. Today, do you really want to go back to the old life? I have hundreds of letters from the former group that were known as hippies that turned from that. And they're ashamed of that old life, And today they've turned to Christ. My friend, when you drop into sin, does it break your heart? That's the important thing. That's the difference, by the way, between a child of God and the child of the devil. The child of the devil just loves doing what the devil wants done. But to the child of God, it's a heartbreak. Now will you listen to verse 22? But now, being made free from sin, and become servants to God. Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the everlasting life. He sets before believers now the golden and glad prospect that they have as slaves of God. They're freed from sin, which leads to death. And they can have fruit that will abide into eternity. Life eternal is in contrast to death. I've always enjoyed going to Hawaii To those beautiful lovely islands out there and I've never grown weary and I'm always thrilled when I hear the story of the missionaries that group of young people some of them in their teens that came out there in 1819 they gave their lives gladly joyfully to the service of Christ and they've been maligned in recent years oh I tell you how the tourists The godless tourist loves to hear them run down. They were a noble race. Do you know they laid the foundation for the greatest revival that took place out there 150 years ago? More people were won to Christ per capita. They had fruit, my friends. How wonderful it was. Now notice Paul concludes this section by saying, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, today, we are coming to this very wonderful seventh chapter of Romans. We've labeled this chapter powerless sanctification. Now, we began the theme of sanctification way back in chapter 5. With the last part of that chapter, we had potential sanctification. And then we saw positional sanctification That is, that we're in Christ, the resurrected Christ. Not the one who walked here 1,900 years ago, but the one who died, rose from the dead, and even at this moment is at the right hand of God. And we're identified with him, and we're to reckon on that. And on that basis, we are to present ourselves to him. Because the Christian life is something actually that you and I cannot live. We can't do it ourselves. The very interesting thing is, though, God never asks you or me to live the Christian life. What he does ask is he wants to live it through us. That's the only way it can be produced. Now, will you notice in this chapter that there are two things that we need to mention as the subject's? We see first the shackles of a saved soul. That takes in just about the first 14 verses. That is, the law cannot produce sanctification in the life of the believer. It merely shackles him. And then the second great subject here is we see the struggle of the saved soul. The shackles of a saved soul and then the struggle of the saved soul. Now, let's get underway. And the believer, by the way, and I should say this, cannot produce sanctification in his life by depending on the desire of the new nature. Just to say, I want to live for Christ and all that, that won't get you anywhere. Not until you and I take this act of presenting ourselves to him and recognizing that we're joined to the living Christ. Oh, how important that is. Now, this chapter is very important, as we've suggested. And I can't overemphasize that. Dr. Griffith Thomas quotes Dr. Alexander White. He says, Dr. White once said that whenever a new book on Romans comes out and is sent to him by its publisher for consideration, he at once turns to the comments on chapter 7, and according to the view taken of that important section, he decides upon the value of the entire work. And the very interesting thing is that you're going to find Paul very logical all through this section, friends. It was Goday that said, and I'm quoting, it's a hundred to one when a reader does not find the Apostle Paul logical. That he's not understanding his thoughts. Now, I was brought up on this, by the way. I had a very wonderful Bible teacher. He'd never really been a pastor, always an itinerant Bible teacher going around from place to place holding conferences. He was a great blessing to multitudes of people, and he was an especial blessing to me. But he taught this. He said, you are to miss the seventh chapter of Romans. He said, now you are to detour around the seventh chapter of Romans. Mustn't live there. You're to get in the eighth chapter. Well, for several years I said that. But you see, I've been a pastor now a long, long time. And friends, I've come to the conclusion that you're not to miss the seventh chapter of Romans. If you've been a pastor and have lived with the saints as I've lived with them, you come to the conclusion that you wish that many of the church members would get into the seventh chapter of Romans. Because the man who got into the seventh chapter of Romans is the man who got into the eighth chapter of Romans. And I'm of the opinion that the way into the eighth chapter of Romans is through the seventh chapter. I think that's the route that most of us come anyway. Well, we're not to detour around it, because if you do, you're on a detour, and you're not on the direct route. It reminds me of that little jingle that goes like this, to dwell above with saints in love. Oh, that will be glory, but to stay below with the saints I know. Well, that's another story. Now, there is something else that we need to see here, that we see the struggle of a saved soul, and he reaches out and grabs a straw. Sometimes that straw is the law, and when he does, he finds out that he's got hold not of a straw or even of a life preserver, but actually of a sack of cement, and it's going to pull him in under, and he can't live that way. And as a result, there are multitudes of the saints that accept defeat today as normal Christian living. I'm of the opinion that there are many saints that are satisfied to go on the low level of a sad, shoddy, sloppy saint of God in their living. And God doesn't want us on that. He doesn't want us to come that route. The very fact that today so many are living on that low plane is an evidence that this is true now this chapter therefore reveals powerless sanctification in fact this is the way you don't do it many years ago there was a cartoon in the paper when it was so popular to do it yourself everything was a do-it-yourself in fact there were certain shops that sold things to do it yourself and the cartoon showed one of these mild-mannered men going into one of these do-it-yourself shops. His hands were all bandaged up, and his arms, and his head was bandaged up. And he asked the clerk back of the counter, and this is what was under the cartoon, do you have any undo-it-yourself kits? And we need to learn that we cannot do it ourselves. We need an undo-it-yourself kit. That means to turn it over to the Spirit of God, to yield to him. Now, the Mosaic law is the place where many Christians go to try to find Christian living. And Paul's going to show that the law, the Mosaic law, has no claim on the believer. Actually, the law condemned man to die. It was a ministry of condemnation. And you're not going to look up the judge who sentenced you to die, to ask him how you're going to live. Now, we have something very essential in this chapter. We have the shackles of a saved soul. Will you listen very carefully to this? I'm reading verse 1 of Romans 7. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? Now, this word, know ye not, is an expression that occurs again and again in the writings of Paul. And when Paul says here, do ye not know? Well, if you want to put that into the positive, it really is, are ye so ignorant? And you can put it down when Paul says, know ye not, that the brethren do not know. And that's the reason he says it. You will find that occurs several times in Romans, and 1 Thessalonians, And in the Corinthian epistles, well, they just major in this. Now, he's speaking to those, he says, to those who know the law. That is, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, the law had over a millennium's trial with the peculiar people of the nation of Israel. And I mean they were peculiar because God had chosen them. And it was in a land that was favorable and adaptable. the keeping of the law, for the law was not only given to a people, but to a land. And the very interesting thing is that these people with the law didn't do so well with it. They never were able to keep it. You remember Peter speaking to his own people in Jerusalem. He said, this law that we've had, we've failed. We've never been able to keep the law. Now, Paul uses an illustration that I think is a great one. But unfortunately, a great many people take off on a tangent here, and they try to get some rules for marriage and divorce. And actually, Paul's not talking about marriage and divorce here. What he's really doing is giving an illustration for today that you and I are not under the law. Now, listen to him in verse 2. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law, that is the Mosaic law, to her living husband. But if her husband be dead, she's completely discharged from the law of her husband. In other words, she's no longer married to him. That is, if he's dead, she's single again. But as long as he lives, she's bound to him. Now, somebody comes forward and says, Look, this means that you can't get a divorce That divorce is wrong under any circumstances. And if a woman does that, she's an adulteress. As Paul puts it here in verse 3. Let me read this now before we come to the explanation. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law so that she's no adulteress though she'd be married to another man. Now, don't try to get some rules and regulations for marriage and divorce here unless you thoroughly understand the background, friends, because it has led to some very ridiculous conclusions on the part of some man. Now, what would happen under the law if a man was unfaithful or a woman was unfaithful in marriage under the law? And that's what Paul's talking about. So we need to go back and look at the Mosaic Law. What did the Mosaic Law have to say? Deuteronomy twenty-two, twenty-two: If a man be found lying with a woman, married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. And he goes on here again and again that they should be put to death. That is, stoned to death. Now, this is what happened under the law. Now, what happened under the Mosaic law? Here is a woman married to a man, and he's a philanderer. He's unfaithful. And what happens? Why, he's stoned to death. That's what happened to him. He's actually lying under a pile of stones. She's free now to marry another, of course. Now, of course, today we're not stoning the unfaithful husbands and wives to death. If we did that here in Southern California, that is stoned to death the unfaithful one, we'd have to get rid of our freeways because we'd have too many rock piles around where somebody had been stoned to death. So just don't try to apply the Mosaic law to the present. And after all, Paul's not talking to you here about marriage and divorce. What he's talking about is the believer in the Christian life. Now, he's not digressing to give instructions on marriage and divorce. He does that elsewhere. What he's trying to say is that when a husband dies, she's no longer a wife after the death of her husband. And if the old boy's been unfaithful, he's dead under the Mosaic law. And I think, actually, that's true today. The Lord Jesus said it was. In other words, she's a single woman again. This, I think, is a universal principle among civilized people. There are heathen, actually, that when a husband dies, they put the wife to death and bury her with him, they put her on a funeral pyre, just burn her alive. But civilized people just never followed that kind of a practice. Paul goes on and he amplifies the law of husband and wife. He brings into sharp focus her status in case that her husband is alive. And again in the case, that the husband is dead. Now notice that in verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, the second husband here for the believers is Christ. We're now joined to the living Christ, and we're no longer joined to the law. The question has always been, what do we mean by the first husband? Who is the first husband? And here is a difference of opinion. Let me give you my translation of this verse, and it might be helpful. It goes something like this. Accordingly, my brethren, you, that is, the old Adamic nature, also were done to death as to the law. That is, the law kills you by means of the body of Christ that you should be married to another, even to him who rose from the dead, that we might bear fruit under God. Now, the wife represents the believer in Christ, and the second husband represents Christ. We're joined to him, but who's the first husband? Well, let's see what some have said. Dr. Sandy, for instance, interprets him as the old state before conversion. The first husband is the old state before conversion to Christianity. And Stifler concludes that the first husband is Christ crucified. The context, especially before but also after makes it inevitable that the first husband, though he's not mentioned, is none other than the crucified Christ. That's the statement, by the way, of Stifler. Dr. Newell makes the first husband to set forth Adam in our position in him. Personally, I think that's the best interpretation because all the way through this section, way back at the beginning of chapter 5, where there were two headships, Adam and Christ. We have the first Adam, the last Adam. We have the first man and the second man. We have Adam and Christ. Now we are joined to Adam through the old Adamic nature. And the law was given to control the old Adamic nature. But actually it failed in doing that through the infirmity of the flesh. We're going to see that in chapter 8. And actually, the law became a millstone around the neck of Israel. It never did lift them up. It kept them in slavery for almost 1,500 years. But its demands had to be met. But man could not meet them. It was indeed a ministration of condemnation. Now, if the Gentiles had to adopt the law when they became believers, there's no hope for them either. Paul says that Christ died in his body and we are identified with Christ and his death, and now we are dead to the law, and the law is dead to us, that first husband is Adam, and we're no longer joined to him. We're joined to the living Christ, and we died with him, we've been raised with him, and he's the second husband now, the living Christ who enables us to bear fruit. We know Christ no longer after the flesh. It's the resurrected Christ that we're joined to. Now, the law's not given, therefore, to the new man in Christ. It's old things have passed away. All things have become new. 2 Corinthians five 17. You're not under the law, but under grace is the ipso facto statement of Scripture. Believer, believe it. It's so, for God says it. Now, let me give you a very ridiculous illustration. I think that will make this very clear, at least I hope that it will. This is a story that I heard when I was a student in seminary down in Georgia. The story goes that way back in antebellum days, that is, before the Civil War, there was a plantation owner, a very fine, handsome man, married to a very beautiful woman. They lived in a lovely home. He took sick and died suddenly was a great heartbreak to her, but she loved him. She loved him with all her might. And she did a very strange thing and a very morbid thing. She had him embalmed, put him in an airtight glass case, in a sitting position, in a chair, and she put him in the great hallway of this lovely southern home. Well, her friends saw that that wouldn't do. The minute you open the door, you're looking at him. There he sits. So they urged her to take a trip, to travel, to leave and go away. And so she went north, and she then traveled abroad. She was in Europe, and almost two years went by. And during that time, she met another man. And she fell in love with him, and she married him. And on their honeymoon, they decided to come south to the plantation And so when they came to the plantation home, he did what a new bridegroom is supposed to do. He picked her up and carried her over the threshold and put her down. And when he did, there was sitting out yonder in the hallway a man in a case looking at him. This man's the new husband, and he's looking at this fellow in the case, and he's amazed. He said to his new bride, who's that? And she'd forgotten all about him. She said, well, that's my first husband. Well, I want to tell you that's pretty ridiculous. And so he said, well, we're going to bury him. After all, you don't want him sitting around looking at you all the time. So that very day they dug a grave and they buried him, which was the proper thing to do. Now she's married to a new man. The old man's dead. Now that's rather ridiculous, is it not? I sometimes wonder if that thing really ever happened or not. But that's the story I heard in Georgie. Now, whether that's true or not, it is true today that there are a lot of church members, a lot of believers. They've dug up the law. In fact, they've never even buried the law. And they've got the law sitting in a glass case, the whole Adamic nature now. And they're going to try and live by the law. My friend, it's ridiculous. We're joined to Christ today. And the Christian life is to please him. Oh, How important that is. I just can't overemphasize it. Now let me read verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring fruit unto death. After all, be very honest, have you been able to keep the law? Have you been able in your own strength to do it? Why, the law was a straitjacket, put on the flesh to control it. And the flesh rebelled and chafed. Under the irksome restraint of the law, there was no joy. The flesh had no capacity or desire to follow the injunctions of the law. And the flesh broke out of the restraint and imposed the law and therefore brought down the irrevocable penalty for breaking the law, which was death. Now listen to Paul in verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, And not in the oldness of the letter. You see, here we're joined to the living Christ and we're to bring forth fruit. Though we're dead to the law, we're to bring forth fruit and we are to serve Him. And it's not on the basis or the motive I ought to do this or I must do this, but now I delight to do it because I want to please Christ. I'm joined to Him and the believer is set free. But now in love he gives himself to the Savior as he never could under the law. This is a little verse I used to carry in my Bible when I was a student in college and seminary. Let me give it to you. I do not work my soul to save, that work my Lord hath done. But I will work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. Friends, we are to serve Christ because we love him. And that's what he meant when he talked to Simon Peter. He said to Simon Peter, Lovest thou me? And then Simon Peter could finally say, You know, Lord, I love you, but you know what a failure I am. But the Lord Jesus said, Now you're going to bring forth fruit. Feed my sheep. And that's the man that stood up and preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. That's the man that opened the door to the Gentiles. That's the man that could say, You know, Lord, I love you. And my friend, that's the important question. God has a lost world today, shut up to the cross. What will you do with my son that died for you? That's his question. Christ not only died to remove the guilt of sin, but he also died and rose again that we today might be joined to a living Savior. And the Christian life is for him to live that life through us. We can't do it ourselves. We can't do it by law. The law is a ministry unto condemnation. And that's what Paul says in verse 7. But there's nothing wrong with the law. Let's understand that. The problem is with us today. Now, listen to his language, and I'm going to read My translation here, which I do not recommend, but I'm trying to bring out the meaning. Follow along in your text. What shall we say then? Is the law sin away with the thought? On the contrary, I should not have known or been conscious of sin except through the law. For I had not known illicit desire, that is coveting, But sin, getting a start through the commandment, produced in me all manner of illicit desires. Apart from the law, sin is dead. And that's Romans 7, 7 and 8. Now you see, Paul began his argument way back in the sixth chapter with this expression, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Now again we find it. Is the law sin? Well, in the first part of this chapter, Paul seems to be saying that law and sin are on a par. If release from sin means release from the law, then are they not the same? And Paul says, perish the thought. Paul will now show that the law is good. It's part of God's will. It reveals his will. And the difficulty is not with the law, but the difficulty is with us. It's the flesh that is at fault. And now Paul becomes very personal in the remainder of this chapter. Have you noticed that he begins now in this section to use the first person pronoun? I and me and myself. And they're used 47 times In this section, here in the 7th of Romans, I appears 28 times. And this is the struggle Paul had within himself. He tried to live for God in the power of his new nature. But this he found impossible. The law revealed to Paul the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The law was an x-ray of his heart. And that's what the law does. You put the law down on your life, and the word of God is called a mirror. It's a mirror, and a mirror reveals yourself. If you've got a spot on your face, the mirror will show it to you. Now, you don't use the mirror to rub it off. And the law can't remove the spot, but it can show you the spot. But God has a place to remove it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Then, therefore, the law revealed the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And that's the important thing that it does. The law, therefore, was not at fault. But that old Adamic nature's the culprit. The admonition of prohibition contained in the law makes clear the weakness of the flesh. It shows that we are a sinner. And that's the reason that it's not important at all. I'm amazed at the number of mirrors that you see around you today. They're everywhere. Department stores are filled with them. They're even on the street. I found out that when we travel around, now which we do a great deal, that one of the first things that my wife will look for in a motel or hotel is the mirror. How many mirrors do they have? And whether there's a full-length mirror. And it's amazing how we all like to look in a mirror and see ourselves. Out here in California, there was a test made some time ago. I don't know just where it was, but there was a mirror that was put in a very public place. And the test was to see whether men or women looked at themselves more. That is, which one, men or women. And as far as I was concerned, they didn't need to put that up. I could have told them it was the women. But unfortunately, the test revealed it otherwise. There were more men that looked in the mirror than there were women. And believe me, I think that test ought to be run over again, because that just doesn't sound right to me. But nevertheless... I accept it. We all like to see ourselves. We like to look in the mirror, except one mirror, and that's the Word of God. You know why? It reveals us as sinners, and that's what the law does, that we are horrible, lost, awful sinners. Now, notice verse 9. Paul says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. You see, it's a ministry of condemnation. The law condemns us, and it can't do anything else but condemn us. Now, notice verse 10, "...and the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death." This is the tragedy of any person who seeks to live by the law. It doesn't lead him to life. Now, it's true that God said of the law, "...this do and thou shall live," in Leviticus eighteen five. But the doing of it proved to be difficult. The fault wasn't in the law. It was in the one who thought the law would bring life and power. It did neither. It merely revealed the weakness, the inability, and the sin of the individual. It's a ministration of condemnation and a ministration of death, if you please. You see, Paul put it in another epistle in Galatians. He said if there'd been a law given that could have given life then God would have given it. But you see, life doesn't come by the law, and living doesn't come by the law. Now, let me use this illustration. A new car can be a very good thing, but in the hands of an inexperienced or an incapable driver, it can become a menace, and it can become a danger. It actually can become a death-dealing instrument. Now, the faults not with the automobile, the faults with the driver. And the problem today is with man. Man is the one that's at fault. He's the culprit. Right now, there's been a great deal of discussion about gun control. We don't need gun control. We need man control. Somebody says, Well, you know, a gun killed a man. No, a gun didn't kill a man. All you can do with a gun is pull a trigger. If you point it at a man... It'll kill him, but you've got to have somebody there pulling the trigger. And that's the fellow that does the killing, and that's man. That's the sinner. And the problem is with man today. But nobody's come up with any kind of a plan today in politics or in the ministry or in sociology or in any field today to control the man. It's all to control the gun. Now, verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. In other words, sin is personified again here and is a tempter. Sin tempts every man outside the Garden of Eden relative to himself and God. Satan made man believe in the Garden of Eden that God could not be trusted, and that man was able to become God apart from God. Sin is like a pied piper today. It leads the children of men into believing that they can keep the law and that God is not needed. This is the false trail that he's been talking about that leads to death. It was ordained to lie false says, and he found that it led him to death. He says, I found it led me to death. Sin at last will kill, for the law did bring a knowledge of sin, and man is without excuse, and the difficulty again is not with the law, but it's with man. Therefore, Paul can say in verse 12, Wherefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. And this is important for us to see. The problem is a human problem. Man is the X in the equation of life. He's the uncertain one. He's the one that cannot be trusted. Now, notice verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin worketh death in me by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, this is a strange paradox. Is it a perversion of a good thing? Well, the commandment was totally incapable of communicating life. Man must have recourse to help from the outside because the commandment intensified the awfulness of sin. Now, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. This is Paul's statement, and you can begin here now this personal struggle of the Apostle Paul. And notice the we and the I here. We know this was the general agreement among believers. The law is spiritual in the sense that it was given by the Holy Spirit and it's part of the Word of God. In other words, that is an expression in Scripture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians ten four, the rock is called spiritual. For obviously, the reference is that it was produced by the Holy Spirit. Israel in the wilderness had spiritual meat and spiritual drink in this sense. That is, the Spirit of God provided it. But now Paul says, but I'm carnal. That means I'm of the flesh, and the flesh is weak. And the word here is sarkonos. It does not mean just the meat on the bones of the body. This is neutral. This body of ours, it can be used for that which is good or bad. It's like the automobile or the gun we referred to. It's this old human mind and the spirit and the nature which occupies and uses the flesh so that actually the flesh itself is contaminated with sin. For example, look upon the face of a baby. Then look at that same face 50 years later. Sin is written indelible lines upon the surface of the body. The flesh is inert. It has no capabilities or possibilities towards God. It's dominated by sinful nature and the ramifications of which reach into the inmost recesses of the body and mind. The frontal lobe of the brain is merely the instrument to devise evil. The motor neurons are ready to spring into evil excesses. And the heart of man, it's desperately wicked, and he wants to do the things that are evil, and the body responds to that. And Paul describes here its pitiful plight as a slave soul to a Simon Legree taskmaster with a whiplash of evil. And here you have the struggle of a saved soul. And I want you to notice, for this is so very important, verse 15, and you have the old nature and the new nature. There are two eyes Now listen to him. For that which I do, I allow not. That's verse 15, the first part of it. Let me change that a little. For that which I do is the old nature, I allow not. The new nature doesn't want to do it. For what I would. Now notice here the last part. For what I would. That is, what the new nature wants to do, that do I not. The old nature Rebels, won't respond, won't do it. But what I hate, that is the new nature hates, that do I. The old nature goes right ahead and does it. Do you know anything about that? Do you know in your Christian life, do you have the experience of this struggle of doing something, then hating yourself because you did it and you have to cry out, oh God, how I failed you. I think every child of God has had that experience. Simon Peter had that experience. Paul had that experience. And this is his experience he's talking about here. And there apparently were three periods in the life of the Apostle Paul. There was that period when he was a proud Pharisee under the Mosaic system, but kidding himself because he was bringing the sacrifices and doing these little things that he thought would make him right with God, but the law was condemning him all the time. But he's a proud Pharisee ignoring that. Then there came the day in his experience when he met Christ on the Damascus Road. And now this proud young Pharisee turns to Christ as his Savior. But he still feels that he can live the Christian life. And that new nature said, I'm now going to live for God. And he fell on his face. And that was the struggle, and that was the failure. I do not know how long that lasted, probably not long. But he went through that period. Then there came the day, and we shall see here, that was a victory, only he didn't win it. But Christ did. And he learned that it was, again, a matter of yielding, presenting himself, and let the Spirit of God live the Christian life through him. He could not do it. Now then... It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He still had the old nature, and now he makes this statement. And Paul learned two things in the struggle, and this is something that many of us believers need to learn. Number one is verse 18a, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, this old nature that we've been talking about, dwelleth no good thing in me dwelleth no good thing. Now, have you learned that? Have you found out that there's no good in you? Oh, how many of us Christians today feel like that in the flesh that we can do something that will please God. And then we find many of these Christians today that don't seem to ever find it otherwise. Well, they become busy as termites. They're having about the same effect. And a A lot of our churches, they are busy as a little bee, but they're not making any honey. They're making vinegar and causing trouble. They get on committees. They're chairman of boards. They try to run the church, and they think that they're pleasing God. And they're busy, but they have no vital connection with the person of Christ. And his life and his death and resurrection is not being lived through them. They're tempting to do it in their own strength by the flesh. And they haven't learned that, as Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Let me make it personal. Anything that Vernon McGee does in the flesh, God hates it. God won't have it. God can't use it. And it's of the flesh and it's no good. Have you learned that? It's a great lesson. Paul learned that. The Lord Jesus had said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that's John 3, 6. And that's all it'll ever be. It can be nothing else but that. But whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. My, how wonderful that is. Now you are given a new nature. That new nature won't commit sin. I'll assure you, the new nature won't commit sin. When I sin, it's the old nature. That new nature won't do it. That new nature just hates sin. That new nature at night won't let me sleep. And it says, look, you're wrong. You've got to make it right. Is that the way it does for you? Now, Paul found out something else that's very important here for us to learn. He says in verse 18 now, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, well, it's no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. The new nature can't do it. He found out there's no good in the old nature and that there's no power in the new nature. Now, the new nature wants to serve God. Fact of the matter is, that is exactly what it wants to do. But the carnal man is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. That which was born of the flesh is flesh. But that new nature has no power. And that's where many of us make our mistake as Christians. I remember when I started out. Oh, I was going to live for God. That's when I fell on my face. I never fell harder than I did then. I thought I could do it myself. Those are the two big mistakes. There's no good in the old nature. There's no power in the new nature. And that's the reason that an evangelist can always get response in a meeting. He can always say, and I'm afraid 90% of the decisions that are made in our churches today have been made by Christians who've been living a failure as a Christian life. And what they really are saying is, I want to live for God. I want to do better. Anytime an evangelist... In any meeting says, all of you that want to live for God, put up your hand. All of you today that want to come closer to God, you put up your hand. Those of you today that want to commit your life to God, put up your hand and come forward. Well, the minute they say that, they got me. That's what I want to do. My, that new nature of mine says, I sure would like to live for God. There's no power in it. And that's the mistake. There have been some people who have been coming forward for years. And that's all they've been doing, just coming forward. And they've never gone anywhere. They just go forward, that's all. And they never arrive. They never get any place. Oh, to understand this great truth. And Paul goes on here to talk about this. He says, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Verse 19. You know anything about that? Verse 20. Now, if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, verse 20. It's that old nature that's causing us trouble. Then Paul says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, verse 21. And I'll be honest with you. Any time that you want to do good and you're tempted to serve God in the Spirit, have you discovered the old nature is right there to bring evil? An evil thought will come into your mind. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, Paul says. But the new nature, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me, that is my new nature, into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And you don't get rid of the old nature when you're saved, and yet no power's in the new nature. And it causes the child of God who is honest to cry out, "'O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the power of this death?' That's verse 24. This is Paul's experience as a believer. This is not an unsaved man that's saying, "'O wretched man that I am.' This is a saved man. And he says, "'O wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me?' He's helpless. He's got his shoulders pinned to the floor. He's been wrestled down. He's like old Jacob. He's crippled. And now there is a way. Will you listen?' Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And if you try and follow the law and live that way, my friends, it leads to sin and death. And there'll be no fruit in your life. But when you see it's through Jesus Christ, now he's given us a modus operandi,